0: everyone today is october 30th 2014 welcome to neuroscientist talk shop utsa's neurobiology podcast our guest today is john huguenard hi john hello he is professor of neurology and neurological sciences uh molecular and cellular physiology and neurosurgery and he's also a member of the stanford neurosciences institute all at stanford school of medicine His research focuses on discerning the ionic and computational mechanisms of large-scale synchronous oscillatory activity in the thalamus cortex and thalamocortical system and other places. I guess I shouldn't just limit it that way. Hello. So around the room, we have Charlie Wilson. Hi. We have Carlos Palladini. Hello. And we have Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So, um... So it seems like whenever uh, one mentions rhythmicity or oscillations in the brain, at least in some crowds, um, the discussion inevitably lands on epilepsy or pathological syndromes and maybe slow wave sleep. Um, but but there are all these endogenous oscillations and rhythm generators um, at various scales and frequencies. Can you say something about why oscillations may be or are important in um, the intact awake CNS?
1: You're asking what roles oscillations might have outside yeah. of epilepsy? Yes. Yeah. Certainly. I mean, it, in the awake CNS, we think a lot about um, cognition and um, gamma frequency oscillations and sort of helping bind um, neural states. The gamma oscillations involves some of the same circuitry that we think about in terms of epilepsy, in terms of local interactions and cortical circuits with excitation and inhibition. So we think about that a lot. There aren't very many specific linkages yet between gamma itself and epilepsy, Um, although some um, perverted forms of ultra-high-frequency oscillations do seem to have a role in, in the onset of seizures.
2: Um, how about other stuff? Spindles and alpha waves. there it just, it just doesn't seem to be any end to the, to the phenomena, the oscillatory phenomena, but they don't really fit into our usual way of talking about the computation of the brain. If we start thinking about receptive fields, and, uh they usually don't involve... Oscillations. When right. you think about reflexes, they don't seem to involve oscillations. But when you just start looking at what neurons are doing in the brain, they all seem to be doing something that has some oscillatory component. It seems like a disconnect
1: to me. It doesn't seem like it to me. So the, the, the issue is if, if oscillations are so commonly observed at, at some level, single cell level or small circuit level, then why can't we attribute a particular... Neural computation or cognitive role to those, and I guess I would put it back to you, say that you know those types of oscillations are not so prominent during awake cognitive states. Um, was that your point? No, I didn't ha- actually have one. <laughs> <laughs> So you know, spindles, um, I think about a lot because I think I really do think that the spindle generating circuitry. Um, has a normal function and clearly sleep and spindle stages of sleep are important in different components of memory consolidation. Um, I think about this in terms of I mean one one key thing to think about in terms of um, oscillations, especially spontaneous oscillations, is they provide the nervous system with the means to um, to reactivate, to to revisit uh, circuits during not so, Aroused states. Um, and spindles in particular, we might have talked about this before. Spindles seem like a really nice way to sparsely revisit during the course of a night many of the different um, circuits that had been involved in remembering or forgetting something in the previous day's experience. And by having this sparse, sporadic, uh, ran, almost random reactivation of cortical circuits, maybe um, that sort of <coughs> Uncoordinated activity, but spontaneously occurring activity um, gives you enough um, real estate that you can actually revisit most of what most of your experience during the day. I
3: guess the, I guess the, the maybe the question is that if if you think of someone who likes to think of things from bottom I and mean, we usually think about ions or some phenomenon, some like visual phenomenon, we can follow the steps up until V1 or some with receptive fields, and like, like, Charlie mentioned. And then there seems to be a gap in knowledge, at least on my part, um, where we now we have these phenomena of oscillations that we can measure um, with different methods, and we attribute these to different behavioral states. Um, but it's hard to see how you go from receptive fields, or Ion channels and, and acting at the single cell level and therefore for creating a circuit that then creates these oscillations that then induces some kind of behavioral state. And um, I, I I don't know it too well, but I was wondering maybe you had some insight in that.
1: And you're yeah, so you're asking what might be the adaptations in normal sensory circuits that allow it to, to go into Oscillatory so states yeah, that, that we don't be, understand uh, very well. Yeah, that would be one way.
2: Yeah, where do the oscillations come from? This is something you've studied a bunch. Yeah. So where do, uh, So if we just picked an oscillation, like a spindle, mm-hmm. could we track down where that comes from and would that help us?
1: Well, uh, we well, certainly know a lot about where spindles come from. So I think Morrison and Bassett in the 40s decorticated Animals. And in those animals, they found that the uh, spindles were still resident in the thalamus. So, although the spindles are a thalamocortical circuit phenomenon, um, they are generated in the thalamus. So, the thalamus is capable of, of generating them independently. And then, presumably, they get reflected in the larger thalamocortical network. Their expression in the thalamus, as I discussed in the talk today, results from all the things that we think are fascinating in the nervous system, which is different ions, um, different neurons expressing specific ion channels that endow them with particular capabilities. So thalamic neurons express um, <coughs> high levels of so-called T-type calcium channels, which give them this amazing ability to fire post inhibitory rebounds. When they're shut down, they come back with a vengeance and they respond with repetitive action potentials. They don't, they don't appreciate being shut down, and that means that in a network that has uh, inhibition as a, a significant component of it, a natural result of that is, um, is rhythmicity.
2: But no one neuron in the thalamus has all the components that are required for that spindle, it requires a circuit of neurons that are connected
1: together. Is that correct? Uh, it's controversial. I mean, I stare out. I used to think that the spindles could be generated completely independently in the reticular nucleus of the thalamus. I think that idea was not widely accepted, and, 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 and I personally hold the view that it's due to the interactions between the excitatory and the inhibitory cells in the thalamus. The relay cells that are excitatory cells in the Particular uh, cells that are in- inhibitory cells, and these two groups of cells have reciprocal connections between them. That that leads to a natural circuit that activity can be initiated and propagated and and, um, and continue for, for quite some time. How come it doesn't go in all the time? So the thalamus. A number of studies, uh, especially by Dave McCormick in the eighties, showed that. Thalamic neurons are strongly modulated by neuromodulators such as norepinephrine, serotonin, acetylcholine, um, and those neuromodulators introduce very interesting uh, modal states in the firing of the neurons, uh, largely through changes in membrane potential. So as, as thalamic neurons are depolarized, they're less likely to be able to contribute to these uh, recurrent network activities such as spindles. And so uh, that means that neuromodulation uh, through uh, alterations in in, uh, brainstem and other, uh, sorry, reticular formation and other um, neuromodulatory uh, sources um, can, through influence of of a very small number of neurons, a very small set of neuron types, can induce large changes in, in cognitive state of the animal to make them um, to drive them either into a spindle state or out of a spindle state
4: so it seems like some of the way but an oversimplified way of of kind of the uh, this discussion is it's kind of like the notion of the thalamus as a switch or a gatekeeper kind of thing and in one state it, it passes information or whatever and doesn't uh, and in another state it switches it off so I guess there's two questions one is does it when the gate is open to the cortex, is the thalamus? Do you think of the thalamus as doing much? And when it's off, in terms of in the, in the sense that uh, you have spindles and it's internally controlled, like who's in, who's in charge? I mean, one of the things about this receptive field notion kind of thing is it's driven from the outside. And if you turn that off and you're asleep, part of the thing is well, who's doing what, right? So it's all kind of internally controlled. So do you think that the you know, I don't know what the role you think of the thalamus is. Is it really in control of that, or who guides all that stuff that's happening?
1: Well, I, I, first, I, th- I think I'd like to correct a misperception. Right? Okay, I mean, we all we all appreciate that you know all the classic studies in sensory experience from Hubel and Wiesel were done with sleeping animals, right? Mm-hmm. Deeply anesthetized animals in which the lemmic cells were not likely participating in what in what hopefully our polemic neurons are participating in right now, which is non-bursting, non-spindling, those, you can get sensory experiences right through the thalamus just fine, even in a sleeping animal, Um, at least as far as the responses of cortical neurons. When you record their responsiveness, they are still responsive, even in an animal that's not otherwise awake. So, so I guess is it, it uh, gets a question of consciousness. And, uh, how's, how's it working then? I mean, that,
2: shouldn't that receptive fields be dramatically altered by whether you're asleep or not? Are they dramatically altered? I
1: mean, that is a good question. I, I don't know the answer to that because. Um, because I, I i guess it's just being started to be explored right i mean now that advanced techniques are available mouse on a ball yeah. where unanesthetized un- approaches are possible and intracellular approaches are possible maybe we can start to learn the answer to that i don't i don't know if it is now so
2: I, I mean i know you, you're, you work with a, on absence epilepsy and then and there's some relationship between spindles and absence epilepsy but absence epilepsy gets noticed when it happens to people who are awake so it's not like it's a phenomenon of sleep maybe it happens when
1: people are asleep does it happen when they're asleep so that's a good question does does the thalamocortical epilepsy which we think uses the same circuitry as um does the spindle oscillations have, uh, coincide with spindles? And in fact, it does in some patients. There's a study by Peter Kellaway, who was here at Houston many years ago, um, who showed that some patients have tremendous correspondence between spike and wave seizures and spindles. It's not every patient, but at least some. So that's, that was actually part of our, our logic that these are evolved.
2: Does that mean that if they
1: were really, really awake
2: and alert, the, the chances of their having a seizure would go way down.
1: That's correct. And um, what's what I've been told by clinicians that treat absence patients, uh, patients with absence epilepsy, is that arousing stimuli will abort a seizure. So it's possible to take this brain state that is switched into an epileptic state and switch it back um, through sensory.
2: Would you mind reminding us just for a minute about absence uh, seizures
1: and yeah, so absence seizures are a form of childhood epilepsy. They, uh, uh, res- uh, they often occur starting at early ages, five or six, and um, can often resolve. And so the, uh, the seizures will go away as, as the patients grow up. They are uh, a form of epilepsy that is um is not associated with a major muscle movement a major motor motor component so the uh, patients will not um, will not fall down will will not um uh will not have uh jerking activity in their limbs but they do lose consciousness for a period of five to ten seconds um uh, they the Uh, Patients will, uh, if they're standing, they will continue standing. If they're sitting in a chair, they will uh, continue to sit in their chair. During the seizure, which is associated with massive activity in the electroencephalogram recorded at the scalp, um, Mm -hmm. during the seizure itself, the the patient will stop doing whatever whatever, uh, activity they were doing. But as soon as the seizure stops, they will often resume exactly what they were doing after, uh, when the seizure started, as though a pause button has been pushed on the on their on their play mode. Is it even like mid sentence, and they'll
2: take off. They will, finish in the they they,
1: Do they realize they have gone through a seizure? Well, you'll it's notice. As if nothing no, they don't notice. It. There's a there's a brief period of confusion, very brief. I mean, you yeah. can imagine just after such a brief pause in consciousness of five seconds, it's not a major interruption, um, and then. Any continuation that they would have in a sentence or an activity will be a little um, disorganized, uh, you know, during a transition period. But very rapidly, um, they will continue their conversation as, as though nothing has happened um, in, in a form of, of epilepsy called pycno, pycno, pycnolepsy. Um, the, these patients can have hundreds of these uh, per day, so they they have a significant risk for um, difficulty in school, as you can imagine, because they're going to be missing large parts of their um, teaching, their learning experience. Driving isn't recommended. Driving in general is a is a challenge for people with epilepsy. That um, it's actually a Uh, it's a big issue that if you have uncontrolled seizures, you won't be able to have a driver's license. And so there's a very complicated dialogue that happens between the patients, their doctors, and the DMV to determine when patients can drive and how long they need to have been seizure-free before they can start driving again. So it's a significant limitation in their life.
0: So these are not the kind that are treated with valproic acid these are not medicated seizures typically or so absence seizures can be treated there's
1: a couple of drugs valproic acid is actually one of the um, agents that uh, is effective in treating absence epilepsy the other one is ethosuximide. these are the and what,
0: are, what are the mechanisms these are just scabergic? oh uh,
1: these are good questions that uh, anti-epileptic drugs were developed many decades ago in in terms of their ability to block an animal from having an induced seizure um, and they work reasonably well at blocking seizures, but they also have significant side effects. Uh, Ethosuximide, we showed many, excuse me, many years ago, is a blocker of an ion channel. It blocks calcium ion channels, including those that are responsible for this uh, post-inhibitory rebound that we talked about before. cells. valproic acid is a very simple compound. It's a branched-chain fatty acid. Um, it's uh, dipropyl acetic acid. It's a very simple compound. It was discovered by accident. You may, many of you may have heard this story that the, the technician that was doing screening on anti drugs one week found that every single drug he was testing was blocking seizures. Then he realized that the solvent that he was using was about acid. And so it was discovered completely by accident. You wouldn't think that a solvent, something with such a simple structure... Um, would be antipoleptic, but indeed it was. So we know now that it is a, a powerful um, uh, chromatin remodeling agent. Um, so it has powerful effects on gene expression, um, like tricho, uh, trichostatic acid, I think is the. Uh, um, so it's, um, and we've shown that it influences the expression of a neuropeptide, neuropeptide Y, in the thalamus, And we think that's part of its anti-epileptic action, that it increases the availability of this naturally occurring anti-epileptic uh, compound um, in the brain. And so it helps the brain adapt to seizures uh, by...
0: And you've by worked out that pathway. Can you just say something about that, the the sort of the how neuropeptide Y is an anti So
1: uh, neuropeptide Y is is a neuropeptide, which is a class of, of neurotransmitter that is typically co-expressed with classical neurotransmitters. So we think of neurons as being excitatory, inhibitory, excitatory neurons re- release glutamate, inhibitory neurons release GABA. but most neurons actually re- release many, more than one type of neurotransmitter, and peptides, neuropeptides are small uh, molecules that are co-released along with the cas- classic transmitters. In thalamus, and in hippocampus, they've been shown through um, uh, gene therapy approaches, as well as uh, as well as uh, knockout studies, that neuropeptide Y is a very powerful modulator of both absence seizures in children, or in models of absence seizures in children, as well as in limbic epilepsy. Um, it, it, it tends to quiet neurons down. It opens potassium channels and, and, and decreases their firing. In the thalamic network, they're expressed in the reticular cells. So they're co-expressed along with the neurotransmitter GABA in the neurons of the reticular nucleus. And we think that they influence the excitability of those cells because uh, when neuropeptide Y is released, it decreases the ability of those neurons which we think are central in the generation of seizures for firing. It just reduces their excitability yeah. a little bit. And importantly, neuropeptide Y is released specifically under under seizure-like conditions where the neurons are firing repetitively over and over again. So we think of this as a naturally uh, seizure response system that helps um, help minimize the, the, um, the, um, the strength of the seizure. Maybe shut it down a little bit earlier and then acid would be boosting this natural um, brain uh, defense mechanism. So
3: if the, the brain has a natural defense mechanism, then the potential for seizures must be something that's sort of intelligently designed into the function of the brain, right? So most people think of epilepsy and other diseases as something going terribly bad, yeah. and it's something that you don't have a natural response to. Um, like, um, um, having a concussion or something like mm-hmm. that, right? Um, but you, you, now you're you're telling us that MPY is something whose function is to prevent oscillations from going too far, perhaps, right?
1: This is this is how we're thinking now about yeah. about uh, uh, certain components of brain function, and my view is that as our brains and our Predecessors' brains have evolved to do higher order functioning. There has to have been co evolution of production mechanisms, and especially in circuits like cerebral cortical circuits where it's largely a recurrent excitatory network. You need breaking mechanisms, and you need them not only in the context of millisecond to millisecond, you know, timing of action potentials and um, sort of. Uh, computation, but also in an adaptive sense, right, in this recurrent mm-hmm. network where things could just get a little bit too close to the edge, mm-hmm. I, you know, my sense is that, are, that we've evolved control mechanisms that detect when you're getting close to that edge, which is why most of us are not seizing all the time. So I,
2: you're... eyes have something good to mess with, then. Yeah. Are there antagonists and agonists for real peptide? Why? that Maybe
1: yes. So, um, NPY antagonists are epileptic, and NPY agonists are uh, anti-epileptic. And as I, as I suggested earlier, gene therapy approaches in animals have shown that if you drive expression of NPY, um, uh, that you decrease seizure uh, susceptibility in animals. Interestingly, um, dentate gyrus granule cells, which are normally excitatory, start to express NPY in epileptic animals. So they change their spots, and they become, presumably, in the same sort of adaptive means. They, they adapt to the ongoing seizures and, and, um, and suppress activity a bit. We know it's not completely effective because those animals still have seizures, but presumably they would be worse if without these adaptive mechanisms.
4: So, so related to that in terms of possible function, does the, does the age of onset... Of these seizures they have important clues about what's happening what's happening why do they start at five or six what's happening
1: that's a great question so in absence epilepsy which develops in childhood and then uh, children will typically grow out of it during um, during adolescence many things are changing in the nervous system including synaptic weights um, um, and um Uh, myelination. I mean, there's many, many features of the nervous system that continue to develop long, long after early postnatal development, where we think our brains are mainly developing. However, having said all that, we don't have a very good idea yet about what are the specific ontogenetic features, what happens during, you know, as kids grow up that suddenly makes them sensitive to seizures and, and how they grow out of it. It's not, and and furthermore, we, the animal models are not so good at this. That the animal models, have, many rats and mice will have absence epilepsy, uh-huh. but once they get it, they tend to have it for life, um, which is different than, than in humans.
4: Other, other primates and yeah. is, it, is it pretty is it common throughout do we know um it's hard to tell i guess and there are yes.
1: Yeah, so there's uh, baboons photosensitive baboons have a form of absence epilepsy i think isn't there a colony here in san there's a colony. Yeah. yeah so those they're, they're studied here actually um um so light delivered at eight hertz i think or maybe six hertz i don't remember the precise Frequency will uh, induce exactly this form of epilepsy um, in bedrooms. Mm-hmm.
2: So, uh, that kind of light would be driving a, a sort of spindle like thing? That they a, are. a hyperspindle,
1: a slowered spindle, which yeah. we think, you know, that the, the sleep spindles that, that we describe occurring in the thalamocortical circuit are pretty fast. They're clicking along at 12 hertz or so, whereas the seizures are much slower. Yeah. So, if you drive sensory input strongly, synchronously, like with a with a flash um, you in these animals and in rats too, you can induce um, you can induce a network activity which is epileptic. Um, um, uh, I don't think you can drive spindles with higher frequency stimuli, as far as I know, because spindles are hard to drive. You can only drive those in a case where the animals drowsy or asleep. I have a can
2: I change the topic? Yeah, just a is sensor. it allowed? Yes. Um, lately, it uh, seems like there's a lot of interest in biosensors, and I noticed you've been involved in some biosensor development stuff and GABA sniffers and glutamate. Uh, splurt. Splurge. Splurge. Are we all talking about splurge? Yeah. So, uh, you know, GABA and glutamate are probably the most important transmitters, certainly the most common transmitters, and they're the hardest ones to measure in the brain. So much easier to measure dopamine than it is to measure GABA. So what are the prospects for having you know, fast ways of probing for GABA and glutamate and experiments?
1: I think that, so the issue is how do we... Know where and when GABA and glutamate are released in the brain. How can we develop new tools that help us understand this normal circuit function and, and, and dysfunction? The the idea of having a biosensor, a sniffer, is is not so new, but but I think is now being applied more commonly to interesting questions. Um, you appreciate, right? But membrane proteins like GABA A receptors themselves are fantastic biosensors. If you had a way to take that biosensor and place it wherever you wanted in the brain, then in real time, right, with the on and off time of a GABA receptor, you could know when GABA was released and how long it lasted and what its kinetics were. So that's an idea that we um, stole, developed, perfected for looking at not just the availability of GABA, but uh, but a modulator of GABA, um, and and it worked very well in our system. And uh, taking this approach of using what the brain has evolved to be highly specific and sensitive uh, receptors allowed us to show that that the brain is making its own valium, that it's making a substance that makes GABA more effective and helps suppress seizures. And we were able to take this approach of taking a tiny piece of membrane at the end of a pipette tip and just positioning it at different places in the brain, in brain sizes, to show um, where this substance was, how it was produced, what the um, what its concentration is, how, uh, how effective it was. At, uh, at modifying GABA function and presumably uh, helping control seizures. So the bigger question, you know, how? Where do we see this going? Uh, I think I think there's different ways to to use the biosensors. We've used them either in this very point source method, where you just put it on the end of a probe and place the probe around, and we've also used a glutamate sensor that just is bit, the slice is bathed in, so it sits everywhere. You could use it as a as a spatial indicator of where glutamate is released. These are these are two approaches that allow us to look at start to look at this. What we've been waiting for um, is the next generation, and that would be uh, sensors that are sensitive enough and are are powerful enough in terms of the light that they produced that they could be placed in interesting compartments, like in a synapse. Right. So if you had a glutamate sensor that you could put in a synapse that would release enough photons that you could actually know when glutamate was released, that would be fantastic. And that hasn't been possible so far, but I, I have hope for that in the future. And, um, and even if it's not in the synapse proper, if it's close enough, if it's in the parasynaptic space, you could still get that sort of sensitivity in order to be able to ask very interesting questions about network dynamics. (laughs) So, you know, where we are right now is the sensors are there. It's just packaging, delivery, and uh, efficiency are the issues. So how do the glutamate sensors work? So the glutamate sensor that we looked at was based on a bacterial binding protein um, uh, from E. coli that uh, binds to glutamate and... In doing so it produces a conformational change in the binding protein, and that can be coupled really nicely with the with the a, a fret mechanism, a fluorescence resonance energy transfer mechanism, where two fluorescent molecules are placed at different locations, bound on certain locations onto the glutamate receptor protein. And so when quote when glutamate binds, it causes a folding or unfolding of that protein so that the two uh, fluorescent parts of the molecule become become nearer or farther from each other, and this produces nice um, fluorescent changes that we can detect in real time um, in real tissue. So we can show where and when glutamate is being um, is being released and how long it lasts. What what I was just referring to is so far we were looking at bulk levels of glutamate. Almost certainly, what happens with release of multiple glutamate release sites at the same time. We haven't been able to resolve what's happening um, at single synapses, which is a bit mysterious because we know that when glutamate is released into a synapse, it's present at very high levels. So it should rapidly saturate all the all these sensors that are there.
0: So the is
2: the problem that the sensors are big molecules that don't make it into the synapse, maybe? That's
1: my not? suspicion, is that they're, they're not making it in or they're not making it at a high enough density, that there's photons starving, essentially, that you're not emitting enough photons from those fluorophores to be able to really detect in, in that time and space to report. Probably engineer
2: probably the, engineered the binding site so that it, you can make low and high affinity... Receptors. Yes. Should,
1: so there but are. the synapse, you'd want a low energy, Exactly. With like exactly. a high quantum a right. quantum field. That's exactly right. And, and enough detection efficiency to yeah. see those few quanta. That, that
2: so will. some of it is the imaging technology yeah. that you use.
1: Which will continue to
2: evolve. So you need to use, it's a kind of worst case, you need high speed and high sensitivity and high resolution all at the same time.
1: Yeah.
3: The other issue would be to actually traffic these yes. exogenous so, proteins to a synapse, right. which I'm guessing the neurons don't normally have.
1: you wouldn't have to worry about them diffusing in there; mm-hmm. they're just being installed. So that yeah. that approach has been attempted. They've been, you know, these sensors have been coupled with with uh, pre- or post synaptic proteins to try to to target them and concentrate them in the area, but so far it it hasn't been successful. I mean, I... That's uh, bound to work. That's bound to work. Yeah. That's bound
3: to work. Yeah, rather than having it just diffuse... Yeah,
1: um, then it goes right where you
3: want it. You don't know, then it's much better than that. Then you have to express it at such a high level that it's also bound to mess with the normal function of the cell
1: yeah and the nice thing about having it specific is that you could apply other approaches like photometry yeah to measure it where you wouldn't necessarily care which synapse was being emitted but you know that it came from a synaptic search, yeah. and so you could just count the total photons being emitted. that's that's a rapidly evolving technology that i think will will be applicable
0: so we're talking next couple of years uh for
1: sensors it's a good question there i'm trying to think of that so lauren luger's lab that genelia is is one of the leaders he's pushing development of a lot of sensors um he's he's the person to ask that kind of question in terms of time frame he has a better sense of the sort of the molecular uh time frame for development um but the photometry it was almost instantly successful. So that part of it, I think, is you know, so people realize that you don't necessarily need to localize the the fluorescence if you can just count all of it and target it, you know, tar- then it, then it, you get a an useful answer. So I think that I anticipate wide adaptation of that approach to to a variety of questions. The sensors to the synapses, I don't know. I don't have a sense of of what what might be the barriers that are that are preventing that. There's some opportunities for closing in the loop, right, because we have
2: photon detector molecules that alter neurons, and then we'd have photon sensor photon generating sensor molecules being generated by the neurons, and we could start getting the neurons to talk to each other in unusual ways I,
1: sure.
2: I there's a some excitement about the possibility
1: of doing that. Yeah, no, I love that idea. Sort of an extension of the fret idea, yeah. right? That you could use local signaling that was based on sensing something, and then um, even as, for therapeutic things. Yeah, yeah. So we're 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 thinking about that, but um, but it's it's in our future vision right now. I think about using uh, bioluminescence
3: um, proteins that can just create their own, you know, like these what are these biolum- bioluminescent organisms that when you swim in the water, they just glows. Um, and you could use those perhaps, and then that would activate some closed loop system like the channel Rhodopsin or
2: halorhodopsin. Right. You need some sensor hooked to those things so that they can make light when wood. you want them. Right. When
1: you want them to. That's yeah. right. Yeah, so we, have it. we haven't adopted that yet, but that's, Charlie's right. What you want is some sensor that gives you specific information for the state that you're interested in, and whether that's sort of integrating overall activity um, or looking for something more specific um, uh, needs to be worked out.
0: Okay, well, you it here. Thanks for joining us, John Huguenard. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.